So, to begin with, I want to say a few words about the songs we sang in preface to the talk this morning. And from there I want to speak something about Srimad Bhagavatam, book that more than any other reveals the secrets of this avatar of Narsingha. And then, time permitting, I want to begin the narration of the Leela that will be continued into the evening discussion. The song, we sang really a song, some verse in Anushtop meter and then a song. And the song, the verses, Prabhupada and I had read with you, I'm not sure, but I know that Sri Chaitanya Dev chanted them himself in Jagannath Puri. Namaste Narasinghaya, offering his pranam to this, this avatar. In the Jagannath temple, seaside of Jagannath Puri, big, big temple, probably the biggest uh, Vishnu temple in, uh, in India in terms of its height and overall comp well comp some compounds may be bigger but very big temple and the Chaitanya Mahaprabhu resided in Puri the whole town is of course centered around the, the temple all economy everything thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of people are all employed by the temple in the service of Jagannath from sweeping to making flower garlands to cooking he has hundreds of cooks and he eats there 54 or something like that, 56 times a day. And the offerings there are very f- famous. And uh, so anyway, Chaitanya Mahaprabhu resided there at the advice of his mother, as we know. And in the temple, there are other deities, avatar of Vishnu as well. And there's one deity of Nishinga. So when he went and had the darshan of Nishinga deity, he chanted these prayers, Namaste, Narasinghaya. And um, basically he's offering his prayers to his pranam, his respect to Nasinga, who gave so much joy to Pralad, his devotee. That is the other side of the equation of the Lord's appearance. He has the power to appear, but it's drawn on by the bhakti, by the love of his devotees. And so it happens. Wonderful event that human society can benefit from if they hear about it from realized persons. And uh, the uh, verses, the poem that he recited speaks uh, a little bit about the leela this play, divine play of his descent and so forth. And so the another element of the equation, this particular Leela, the adversary. So there's the good Perlad, and then there's the evil Hiranya Hiranya Kashipu. We'll talk more about him later. But the poem describes how this Nasringha, as much as he gave joy and to Perlad, he was like what death personified to 
the evil of personified by Hiranyakashipu, and he, he tore him apart. He set him on his lap, it says there, and tore him apart. And again, and I take shelter of him, the poem says. He was inside, outside, he's everywhere. And this all, all pervasiveness of the avatar, in spite of his appearing in a particular place, which is a very interesting philosophical point, is brought out in this leela, so it's mentioned in the poem. And then the song that we sang is, a, is one really uh, stanza from a song that uh, was written by Jaidev Goswami, and it, it uh, prefaces his practically entire narration, poem, a narrative of a poetic narrative of a leela, uh, of Radha and Krishna, love, dance, and romance of Radha and Krishna, the love life of, of God, really, very esoteric idea, where, as I've said before, God has a problem. This is the kind of news that would shock the religious world and maybe break their faith, that God has a problem. But this is the th- one part of the wonderful theology of Gaudiya Vaishnavism. What is the nature of that problem? How it's philosophically, theologically possible? And what is the solution? And so forth. Basically, he's fallen in love with his devotee, and in this case, rather the personification of highest ideal of devotion. And the nature of the loving affair is similar to that of what makes this world go around, romantic love. So it's a very beautiful poem, very high idea. And he prefaces it with a song consisting of about 10, 11 stanzas that glorify different avatars or descents of Godhead in the world. And the one that we sang, the one verse from that song, is the way in which Jadev put into poetry a uh, glorification of the descent of Narahari, Narahari Rupa, Jaya Jagadisha Hare, Kesha Bhadrita, Narahari Rupa, Jaya Jagadisha Hare. It's um, apparent if we look carefully at the poem, which, as I say, prefaces this love romance, life, love life of, of God, that what he wants to say, among other things, at least in terms of tattva, in terms of siddhanta, in terms of philosophy, by his poem, is that all this Narahari, this Matsya, Kurma, Varaha, Buddha is mentioned, one of the avatars and so forth, all of these avatars, when he gives some glorification of them, they are all aspects, if you will, of Krishna, Swayam Bhagavan. He says, Krishnaya Tubhyam Namaha, just following the prayer. He says there that all of these avatars are really faces, different faces of Swayam Bhagavan, the original, the fountainhead of all descents of God, at the very heart of divinity. His head is talked about, his power is talked about, his anger is talked about, his uh, slavific uh, inclination, compassion, and so forth, different aspects. It's all prefacing this description of this love life of a young boy and a young girl, he wants to let us know that it's not an ordinary boy and an ordinary girl. This boy is Nasinga, he's Matsya, he's Gurma, he's all these different avatars. These are just faces of him, aspects of him. And so we, if we approach it in the proper way, then we get some, some sense of, oh, it distances us a little bit. Oh, some Aishvarya, some majesty, he's extraordinary. And then, of course, the fact 
that he's doing something very that appears very ordinary, falling in love and and so forth. That is very charming. It wouldn't be very charming or sweet if he wasn't who he is. For everybody, it happens to everybody. <laughs> we don't. It's charming to some extent, but yeah, yeah, we know. <laughs> he fell in love with this one or that one, or she fell in love. But he, who's impartial, has fallen in love. This is very. This should get your attention. What? What is that about? And this Lila, of course, of Shinya Bhagavan speaks about it to some extent in the poetry of the song. He uses a very nice. Uh, literary device, he gives a reverse kind of metaphor or something like that. Ordinarily bees, they pierce the lotus flower and take the honey. And in this poem, the demon, Hiranyakashipu, is compared to a, to a bee. And the lotus hands and nails, in particular, of the, of the lion, this thing is half man and half lion, this avatar. So he had a uh, mane like a lion and long you know, like uh, what is that? fingernails, claws. claws. The claws are compared to the lotus. That's very interesting. They're very soft and lotuses are very beautiful, but, but that depends how you approach them. To, to see that, to see that face of God that's charming, endearing, that's friendly to us, rather than in opposition to us, as it may appear at times. It requires a particular approach. And if you have the wrong approach, then the idea is that this lotus flower has claws also. <laughs> and this bee, Hiranyakashipu, came into the flower. Instead of tearing the flower apart, he got torn apart by the nails of Narahari. So, the idea is God is beautiful and charming and dear, but you, you have to kind of approach him on his terms, in friendly terms, really. And for the most part, our material existence is one that is in opposition. We are going against the current, really. And we're thinking that the world is against us, but we're against the world. We look at it, with that means to say, with an exploitive eye, with a view to use it for our own purpose. And our purpose is that which we conceive of in the very small world of our mind, which is informed by imperfect instruments of the senses. For example, we reach out, we touch the world, we get a sensation, it's related to the mind. We hear a sound and a message, an impulse, a sensation is related to the mind. And we, we see a form and something comes to the mind. And what comes to your mind when you see her is the one thing. And what comes to another's mind when he sees him, it's different. Same with touching, same with smelling, same with tasting, and so forth. So we have a world, so to speak, of our goods and bads and happies and sads, our likes and dislikes. It's all in, in our own mind, that world. It's not the real world. It's a world formed by senses that are imperfect, that give different readings to different people. Same sense of smell in one person will give one reading, and another reading to another person. So we're worlds apart, really, by living in the small and misinformed world of our minds. So, spiritual life is about coming out of that. Staying in that, unfortunately, makes God invisible to us, practically, because it, to the extent that we're absorbed in that world, self-absorbed, we're absorbed in a false sense of self, one that needs to be protected. 
one that's going to die. And so I have to get busy for my survival. So I'm in a, I'm in a, in a assertive mood, a taking mood, an aggressive mood. And of course, this is all different degrees of, you know, there's people that are obviously aggressive and then there are people that may not appear to be aggressive. They may even be peaceful and, and all. And, but to the extent that any of us are living in the, only in this world of our mind, then it's really kind of mean-spirited. And there are, are obviously levels of that, degrees of that. And, and relatively speaking, peace is better than war, but there's more to it if we want real peace. And for that matter, we don't want just peace, we want love, which has got war in it too. <laughs> it's just the nature of it, and it's sweet, actually. The lover's quarrels are, are something that uh, many poets' pens have, have written about wonderfully. So, at any rate, this living in the world of the mind is kind of mean-spirited, if you will. It's going against the current. It's not seeing, for example, everything is meant for the serving the center. I'm not the center, but I've made my mind, world of mind, the center and I'm th- wanting everything to move around that. It's a very small world, as I've said before, and it's very unreasonable for us to think that everyone should be happy living within it, when, in fact, we're not even happy living <laughs> within it. So to come out of it, this is what spiritual life is about. And to stay in it, as I say, is to move, to one extent or another, against the current, to be off-center. Energy should be given to the center, just like the body has a center, in the form of the stomach where the food should be given. And then, mystically, the energy is transformed and distributed throughout the whole body. If we try to give the food to just the hand, or it stops in the mouth, if there is a rebellion on the part of any of these parts against the center of the stomach, then there will be the, the demise of the whole. So the part, uh, uh, should the demise of the part, in this case, example is limited, the demise of the whole, whole body. So if the part is to thrive, it has to find its, uh, the center. And this involves coming out of the world of the mind. So these stories, this singing and so forth, this philosophy, you know, it's for that purpose actually. It's, it's to arrest our mind and take us out from there. And so that we can see the smiling face of Bhagwan of God, charming, endearing. We can see that we're small, we're not big. The illusion of living in the mind is that we're allowed to think that we're big and important on a universal scale. We're really very small and significant. If an ant died today, who would know? It's not much difference, really. Maybe in our family or in our town, in our country, depending on how big of an ant we are, or in, in the world of seven continents, but this is, just, so this is just a speck of dust in the universe, amongst many, many universes. It's, 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 it's a small thing. We're significant, that's true, but our material life is not significant. It's a bit of a sham, actually. And it will come, as it's come, so it will go. It will disappear. So... The idea here of the spiritual life, devotional yoga, is to come out from that on the one side and the other side, in the context of coming out, to establish a meaningful relationship with the center. 
and see then, like Prahlad did, Bahir Nasringho, Rudai Nasringho. See God everywhere. See Him nowhere. Why shall He show Himself? If our approach is exploitive to that extent, He will remain in the background. So the whole Bhagwat that we're going to discuss this literature is all about different degrees of closeness to God based on selflessness of the individual self. So we want to move in that direction. We don't want to be torn apart by the nails of the Sringa. We want to be embraced and batted on the head and even licked like a kitten licks, <laughs> as Prahlad was, by Nasringadev. We'll get to all that as kind of the end of the story there, <laughs> and how the gods all watched in awe, and how this the boy was able to charm this ferocious appearance of Bhagawan, who justifiably was quite angry at the way in which this demon was pursuing an exploitive life to the extent of torturing Bhagawan's own devotee. So, it's a very nice song at any rate, by Jayadev, very full of meaning, and very meaningful how he has placed it at the beginning of his description of the romantic life of Radha and Krishna, to again give us some idea that this affair is very extraordinary. It's the, it's the love life of, of God. It's like unthinkable, unimaginable, but he had some access to that internally, he revealing it. So, this kind of work of Jaidev, writing poems like this that are beautiful and profound, is all in the line of the Bhagwat school. Uh, we are considered to be in the, in the Bhagwat Marg, and our path, in one sense, centers around this uh, extraordinary literature, Srimad Bhagavatam, sometimes just called the Bhagwat Purana, sometimes called the Bhagavatam, or just the Bhagwat. And Chaitanya Dev embraced this book like no other. It is said by Thakur Bhakti Vinod that the Bhagavatam had its childhood in Badrik Ashram in Himalayas, where Vyas wrote it down originally. It has origins beyond the writing of Vyas, but there it came in book form in the first time, the Bhagavat. Its childhood in, in the Himalayas and its youth in Naimisharanya where Sutta Goswami spoke it again after having heard it from Sukadev, who had heard it from Vyas in his ashram, it repeating and expanded the meaning of it. And it had its boyhood on the banks of the Kaveri. Kaveri is one of the sacred rivers in India, and it's mentioned in the Bhagavad, that Bhakti will flourish along the Kaveri in the South India, gives some reference to South India. And... As we talk about it, we'll see that the authorship of this book is elusive. Hmm. It's uh, concrete in one sense. It's written by Vyas, but what Vyas, when, how... Vyas means compiler. And so there's some support, objective support, for the idea that it was written in the South. And I think Thakabhakti Vinod is referring to this, where he's writing about Bhagavat like this in an effort to interface this Bhagwat literature with the modern world, modern sensibilities and so forth. When he said it got its boyhood along the Kaveri and it's, it reached its maturity where? In Nadia, when Nimai Pandit became a Bhagwat himself, a devotee. 
Chaitanya Mahaprabhu and brought out what is in the Bhagavatam. More than Vyas could show was in his own writing, more than Sutta could bring out in his speech, reiterating what he'd heard from Sukadev when he spoke to the Raj of India at the time, the Bhagavat at the time of the Raj's passing from the world. More than whoever may have had a part to play in the manifesting of the Bhagavat that we have today, about close to 18,000 verses, in which the story of not only Vyasa's writing the book, but his speaking to Sukadev, and Sukadev's speaking to the Raj, and Sutta's reiterating that with more insight to the sages at Naimisharanya, but also the speaking of the Bhagavat in four verses from Brahma to Krishna. It went from four verses to 18,000 verses. And also in the book is recorded the speaking of Brahma to Narada, Narada speaking it to Vyas. Again, Vyas writing it down for the first. All this is recorded in that edition that we have today. All these different, and as well as that, on a side note, the speaking of it by Shiva to the Kumaras also. So this is an extraordinary work. In literary form, it's extraordinary. And from a substantially uh, spiritual point of view, it's extraordinary. It's a, it's a growing thing, Bhagavat. It's really the life of God. That's what it's about. It's the life, the biography of God. It's very extraordinary. It's kind of what it means, Srimad Bhagavatam. And so it's not a dull life, rich with uh, meaning and significance. And this is what the devotee in the school of bhakti, the yoga of love, has access to. The life of Bhagavan becomes a participant in that. And of course, it's ongoing. It never ends. It's not like our material lives that appear and disappear and, and we're forgotten forever at some point. After global warming, we'll all be forgot or something like that. Even Al Gore will be forgotten. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> So it's, it's an ongoing life, and so there's always new insight. And insight comes to those who are participating in that, to one extent or another, and they share this. So this is the Bhagavat. This is what it is. But it has a literary manifestation, and that is extraordinary as well. Super extraordinary from a literary point of view. Sanskrit is, of course, a very sophisticated language, and to write literature and poetry in Sanskrit, just like in any language, if you were to write literature and poetry, you have to have a command of the language. It's not just the commoners' uh, English, you know. So we find this, from a literary point of view, an extraordinary masterpiece in, in all of the Sanskrit literature manifest in India. This has a, a particular uh, place, extraordinary place. It employs over 35 different uh, meters, and these meters are suited for the particular discussion at hand in that phase of the book. And so many literary devices, of course, are employed in the book to tell the story, if you will, of the life of God. So it's very, very artful, and, and it's kind of like based on a true story, is the idea based on a true story. And 
spoken about in poetry, which is an, is, is appropriate language to speak about love, in which there are so many nuances and so many meanings, layers of meanings and so forth. The book is said to be about Brahman, about the Absolute, Bhagavan, Bhagavad, but in a particular way. Raso uh, Vaisaha, the Upanishads say, Brahman is Rasa. So the book is about Rasa. In poetry, Rasa means the soul of poetry, the very soul of the poetry. That which hearing, when the listener hears the poetry, he reaches a stage of absorption in the poetry, identification with the poetry, that he becomes one with the emotions in the poetry and becomes displaced, so to speak, displaced from his, own, his position, fortified as he is in the world of his mind. So even secular poetry can do this to some extent. So in Indian uh, aesthetics, then rasa means the very soul of the poetry, but it reaches a certain height and the listener identifies with that and gets kind of transported into the poem itself. It's living there, experiencing those emotions that are being talked about at the time. And from a spiritual point of view, this word rasa, it kind of means the, kind of the, the, the soul of, of God also. It's like the height of uh, the emotional life of God, rasananda. And the implication is that when this literary expertise is invoked, employed in a description of the transcendent life, the lila of God, our life is under the rule of karma. It's obligatory. We move because we have to move. We move because we've, we're indebted. We owe, and so we have to pay. We said that we're struggling to stay alive. We, we've plugged ourselves into the karmic machine, and we've taken, and so we have a debt. And we have to, I owe, I owe, I off to work, off to work I go, they say. So that's why we're, we, largely while we're moving, we want to move out of freedom and just play without any obligation. We want that kind of movement. This is the kind of movement of Bhagavan. This is the difference between Leela and Karma. The Leela of Bhagavan may look like Karma, but its difference is, is considerable because it's not obligatory. Some philosophers reason that if you move, then you must be unfulfilled. Therefore, shanti, 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 sit still, forever, quiet. Om, shanti, silence, be alone and be happy because people are problematic, <laughs> disturbing, <laughs> relationships are difficult, and so forth. So they want to move away from all of that. And they, they conclude, therefore, the, that the ultimate reality must be still, quiet. The absolute being fulfilled must have no movement, just kind of a static bliss of existing and being and knowing in that being, or just being without any fear of not being, at any time, without any conflict. But to be alone and not, is not to say much, I have no conflict in my life because I'm alone. <laughs> the art of living is to not be alone and not have conflict. That is artful. To do away with everybody else and say, <laughs> see, I have no argument with anybody. <laughs> this is uh, not very artful. So, Leela in the Bhagavad school is considered such that it is a movement of Brahman, of the Absolute, 
in play, not out of a necessity to move, but in celebration of his fullness. And he opens that up to allow us to participate in that through yoga, through the school of yoga. And to, to participate in that, this is rasa. Rasa requires two. Like in the literary world, it requires the poem and then the, the, uh, the hearer of the poem, the reader of the poem. It requires the drama and the, the viewers of the drama. So in the spiritual context, rasa requires two. It requires the object of love, the perfect object of love, Brahman, the absolute, and then the devotee. And the devotee becomes identified with Brahman in the context of Brahman's life and becomes a participant in that life and tastes rasa. So there are two. So there's Nusimha and there's Prahlad. So it's a great uh, literary contribution and a great uh, spiritual contribution, the Bhagavad, and a difficult book to understand. And it doesn't help, maybe you might think, that one of the most prominent exponents of the book has explained it in a very literal way. Like Migrative explained it in a very literal way, in a very concrete way, the Leela. Almost as if it was historical facts, one after another, detail. Of course, he got his lead from this, from previous acharyas, even the Goswamis, Rupsanatan, the original writers in the Chaitanya Sampradaya on the Bhagwat. They did this too. Have you studied their commentaries very carefully? Now, there's a reason that they did this, because the fact of the matter is, as I said, it's not a historical account of one fact after another after another in detail. Like we record Western history, Indian history has never been recorded like that. Therefore, the history of India is kind of like, what is it? From a Western point of view. Indian history has been more preoccupied, Indian historians, with recording the feeling of the time rather than the details. And therefore, in order to reveal the feeling of the time, the details can be adjusted if you know the feeling. Mm -hmm. This is the idea. And so, the devotee writing about Bhagavan's Leela and so forth and the philosophy that underlies it and whatnot has some poetic license to try to explain his feeling, which after all, his experience, I should say, which is beyond words, beyond logic. How can it be literal in every respect when the very thing that's being discussed exceeds the limits of words? Words can't accurately and adequately describe it. That's why we keep talking about it, keep talking about it. But we'll never be successful. Not that we should give up and be silent. It's worth talking about. And more and more is coming out all the time. This is the idea. So, but the reason that they spoke about it like this is what? It's because we are now very fortified in the world of our mind and very much uh, we identify with the concreteness as it appears of the world of the senses. The fact of the matter is, of course, even scientists and philosophers of other traditions will tell you that the world's not very concrete. What are colors? Waves. We think of them in a very different way. We, we can say they're waves, but we don't think like that. We don't act like that. The scientist can tell you different things about your perception and so forth. You can go to, I haven't gone to, but I heard about it. I'd like to go sometime. There's a museum in San Francisco somewhere, and they've got these. You go in there, and you, uh, and you look in the box, and then it, it shows how 
perception through the senses can be deceiving. I don't know, they show something. It's very it's science, basically, some type of science exhibit or something like that. And you look at it and you go, Wow, it's silly. I thought it was like, I looked at it and I thought it was like that, but it was really over here and not over there. And so this is not uncommon knowledge, but it is uncommon knowledge. Because real knowledge is turned into action. And so if you really know it, then you act accordingly. But we don't know it. So we're acting otherwise. We're acting as if things are very concrete and real. And they're really not. They're really here today and gone tomorrow. And the whole experience is a subjective one. You saw it and I saw it. Same thing, but it was different for each of us. So this Bhagavad school you know, it seeks to take us out of this um, to shake us into action, to bring us into knowledge as to the, our faulty perception of the nature of the world. And so, in a very strong way, it seeks to unsettle us from our fortified position in the world of the mind. And we just had it all kind of figured out, what things were, and, and, and this, whole, this comes and turns us upside down. It says, uh, you know, the, the world of the senses and the perception, the world in your, of your mind, informed by the senses, is it's just false. It's not hot and it's not cold. It's hot for you, it's cold for you. It's neither one. This is like disconcerting. So we become un- unsettled. You have to understand that the difference between material life and spiritual life is like the difference between water and land. To walk on the land is one thing, to walk on the water is another altogether. Swimming is very different from living on the land. So they want to move us from our land life to water life. We're like a fish out of water, right? We're on the land, flopping around. We belong in the water. But we've been on the land for so long that when the land is shown to be not so solid by like the language of the Bhagavad, the philosophy of the Bhagavad, really, very powerfully it seeks to shake us from this, which becomes disconcerting. So we can't just jump in the water. We drown. We need something that's kind of in between land and water. So the literal explanation of it is kind of a raft. And there you are. You're in the water. You're on the raft. It's, it's different. You can't move in the same way. If you go too much on one side, it'll go up on the other side. So you're floating in the water. It's, you're on the water, but you're really not in the water. The problem is of course, that when a great teachers do this, give this kind of explanation to help us get from land to water and get some standing in the water and so forth, we end up thinking that being on the raft is what it means to be in the water. <laughs> and we never dive deep. We never go in, we never swim, we never, what to speak, plumb the depths of the ocean, the deep breath, what to speak of learning to breathe underwater just to pursue the the analogy further, how different spiritual life is from material life. You've got to breathe underwater. It's impossible. This is how we react sometimes to the spiritual life. Impossible. Impossible, it's not found in the dictionary there. All things possible. So some type of explanation is often given like this. And Taco Bhaktivedon has written along these lines. He said that the previous acharyas 
who have written about the Bhagavatam. This means Sanatana Goswami, Vishwanath Chakrati Thakur, and so forth. They've written in such a way as to cater to neophytes, beginners, so they can get some standing in the whole thing in Shraddha, in faith. That their faith in their material life can be broken. And what they perceive to be true and accurate and values that they have can be exposed for what they are, just a burden to, the, to you and your life. They have no real value. The values we've created based on desire. It's a whole other discussion. But they break our faith in that. And then they give us faith in the Leela of Bhagavan and this, like I say, life of, of God and the opportunity to participate in that life. And how they break our faith in our perception of this world our present perception, is by making clear to us, through philosophy, the kind of things I'm talking about, about the nature of the world, so that we can see it like we hadn't seen it before, or the things that we do see and we do know, we do acknowledge universally. Oh, here today and gone tomorrow. Yeah, we know it. But we don't, I say, act on it. Yeah, right, colors are just vibrations. It's not really an objective thing like I thought it was. But we don't act like that. So... It reveals it and just goes on and on and on along these lines so that you're forced, you're intimidated, you're cornered to take action, to put knowledge into action. That's when you actually, you can say, I know. Mm -hmm. I put it into action. I know. Realization. A lot of theoretical knowledge, but given in a very compelling way. It's not just, here's this, you know, like you go to science class, here it is. It's very compelling and there's a reason why you should act differently. There are implications for acting in the way that you are. And there's much that you're losing out on. And look what you're pursuing, love, and it's not to be found in this world of the mind and so forth. In a very compelling way. Just as compelling as if you were on the upper floor of a building and the lower floors were on fire. And someone yelled, fire, fire. And held a knit, jump. I don't know if I can jump. It's not that hot up here yet. But I can see that the whole thing is going to burn down. Jump, jump. Hmm? Very compelling. And then you just jump. And the net is there to catch you. And, and then you have to get your, get your balance and walk again and so forth. So, so this is the way the Bhagavatam speaks. It, it creates faith in another world, so to speak, or an entirely different perception with many things that are impossible from our point of view, in the world of our senses. It talks about people with four heads and a hundred hands and a thousand hands and all kinds of things. Huh? So one reason for emphasizing the literal nature of that is to emphasize that the world of your experience is fantastic, is imaginary. Once uh, a fellow was said that he had told my Guru Maharaj Prabhupada that he had read his book about Krishna, the Krishna book we used to call it, it's a summary of the tenth canto of this book, the Bhagavad. And so Prabhupada said to him, well, what did you think? He said, I thought it was a bit fantastic. And Prabhupada said, I think you are a bit fantastic. You should think about that. But what is your life? How, how much of a fantasy your life is? And the world of the senses is and so forth. So by emphasizing it on that side, we emphasize the point that what do you know? What is? Why should everything in order for it to be valid, need to be validated by your senses and the limits of your logic. That is illogical and unreasonable. Your senses are limited, they're imperfect, logic is, is limited, and so on and so forth. So, it's very effective in this way. It breaks 
our faith in material existence, and we're a being of faith. We, we are a unit of faith. That's what we are. Shadumayo ayam purushaha. Gita says, faith is what we are. We're a conviction. We're a unit of conviction. And where we repose our conviction, we will determine our, the nature of our existence. So it speaks to us in a compelling way that we will be moved to express our conviction in relation to Krishna. And then explaining this Krishna as the center and why, and philosophically and so forth. There are ten subjects in the Bhagavatam. Janmadiyasyataha, it says in the first verse. Sarga visarga stanam nirodha. Janmadiyasyataha. Manifestation of the original elements that the whole thing is made of. The mixing of those elements. That's sarga, visarga. The mixing of those elements by the, by the Brahma, as he's called. Then stanam, maintaining the whole thing. Janmadiyasyataha. And nirodha. Bringing an end to it. Winding it all up. Then, uh, Tene Brahma Adikavaye, so, this Ishanukata, Manbhantar, is, uh, stories about kings and sages and their lives, things that can be drawn from them. Ishanukata means, proportionally means protection of the pious, of the stories like this, information about devotees, how they're protected. Ishanukata, Topics describing the avatars, Ishanukata. This is the topic we're focused on with the avatar appearance of Nishin, Ishanukata. A phase of Swayam Bhagavan and something about him. Tene Brahmahriyadikabe. Muyanti Yatsure, Uti. Mitaya, Uti. Muyanti Yatsure means the gods are bewildered by Uti, by calm, material desire that fuels the whole material existence. Desire is fueling the fire of material existence. And the more we feed it, the more it flames that we burned in that muyanti yatsuraya, bewildered, even up to the gods, goddesses too. In fact, they're usually the ones that are bewildering the gods and vice versa. Muyanti yatsuraya, tejo varimidamita vinimayata trisargu mashadamna svenan rasta kuhakam satyam param dimahi. So he had, what? Sarga, visarga, Stanam Niroda, Poshanam Ishanukata, Manbantara, and Uti, and Moksha, Mukti, and Ten, Ashray, Mukti. So, Dhamma Sena Nirasta, Kuhakam Satyam Param, Satyam Param Dimahi. This is Ashray Tattva, and Dhamma Sena, Kuhakam. Nirastam, Nirodha. So all these ten subjects indicated for the learned who know even the very first verse of the Bhagavat, among other things, are said there what it will be about. A book could be written about the first verse of this uh, text, Sumat Bhagavatam. And nine of these subjects are called Ashrita, and one of them is called Ashrai. The sheltered and the shelter. The Ashrai is that which gives shelter to all others. And these are big things, these others. The creation, the manifesting of the world, the winding up of the world, uh, the avatars, they're extraordinary. Their stories are described there. Like the one of the Shinga we're talking about, it's very extraordinary. The stories of the lives of saintly people. You know, all these things, it's all sheltered under one. And that one Ashraya Tattu, that is Krishna, who again appears like a cowherd, 
herding cows and pining in his heart for Radha's attention. I've said it before, it's worth repeating. Most religions in the world, they seek to emphasize the point that God is the most worshipable object. Using it, you know, that's a, I suppose to use it in a Christian way, God is the most worshipable object, but the center is most worshipable, or where we should give our energy. We can talk about it in different ways, same principle. But in Gaudiya Vaishnavism, there's a unique contribution to the theological and religious and spiritual culture. And what is that? That our emphasis is not on the center, although I talked about the center, and that's important, as much as what the center is centered on. Or rather than on the idea that God is the most worshipable object, centered on what is the most worshipable object of God. So this is like kind of this whole thing is very head spinning. This whole theology, it's very much meant to shake up not only your material conception of life, but spiritual conception. And this Bhagavad is going through so many different levels of spiritual conception, the way in which people think of what spiritual life. Bill Moyers said a few years back that the challenge to the journalist in this coming this century, the century we're in, this new century, is to define the spiritual. It's a nice point, because there are many different explanations and definitions. This Bhagavad should get around. It should have a chance to get around. This is the idea of Mahaprabhu. It should have a chance to be spread around. So, ten subjects of the Bhagavatam, all sheltered. Nine sheltered, one the shelter. Swayam Bhagavan, Sri Krishna. And so the book is centered around him. It's a philosophical book. While the stories are like say, based on true stories, the author has taken a literary license to do what? To explain the philosophical underpinning of the whole thing. He's explaining bhava, ultimately. He's explaining prem, trying to give the words to this, spiritual emotion, spiritual love. Even material emotions are difficult to talk about, but they're real. And they cause action and movement, and they, and they have shape. They take a shape. They come in the mind, appear in the mind, and they shape. We are basically we're shaped by our emotions. So this is such a thing as emotion that pours from the soul itself rather than from the mind, which is a material thing. And so the Bhagavad is seeking to explain this. It's just like deep, deep, and oceanic. So to get us on board, so to speak, to get us on in the ocean, on a raft, anyway. At least you're, you're there. It's sometimes explained in a very literal. Way our emphasis is given like that. But if we were to progress, then, as Bhaktivinoda Thakur explains, the faith that is awakened through such an exercise has to be matured, and the heart of faith has to be balanced with reason. And so this will make the faith strong and developed, and it will give one the prospect then for actually developing brain, love, entering into that world of emotion. After all, we have intelligence. So we have to bear down on the whole thing. But if we just approach it with our intelligence, we'll be repelled. The affair, the life, love life of God will not submit to our intelligence. And it's not gonna, it's not gonna appear in the court of our, our mind to be decided whether or not he exists or whether it's plausible or not. Hmm? <laughs> that he can do this or he can do that. I don't know about that. I don't know if he can do that or. No. He's not gonna show up for that court date. No. But that doesn't mean that our intelligence shouldn't be employed. The trick, the art, 
of the Acharya, the, the saint explaining the Bhagavat, is that by giving a, a rather literal explanation, let's say he gets us on the raft in the, in the ocean of devotion, ocean of bhakti, and what that does is, as I said, moves us to action. We're informed what the world's really like. We saw it differently. We were, we were interacting, so we've got to act in a different way now. We're driven to action, and that action is most important because action, then in relation to the center, properly centered, gives experience. So the initial faith is fed, then, through action with experience, and we become solidified there. We're not going anywhere. And then when someone comes along in the succession of charges, saintly persons, and so forth, and tells us, I know you were told that everything in here is literal, but I'm going to tell you there's nothing in here that's literal. Nothing. Then again, we're slipping on the raft. <laughs> He's kind of like pushed us off the raft. You've got to get in the water. Then <laughs> swim here. I'm holding your hand in this, but... I know there's big waves today, too. But that happens sometimes. Eventually you like it. So... We thought we had it all figured out. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. I know the Bhagavatam. I can repeat this verse and that verse. I memorize this one. No, it's a whole world of spiritual emotion. Even from a literary point of view, very difficult to understand why he's writing that way, why he's using that particular meter at that particular time, what kind of poetic license he might be taking here or there and so forth. What is the underlying point? Is an underlying philosophy. Now, another reason for giving a very literal explanation is what? Some teachers have said, and I've referred to them in other, other schools, that Brahman, the absolute, the ultimate experience of ultimate reality must be still. can't be any movement there. Because if you move, you're unfulfilled. We've given a reason why that's not necessarily accurate. You may move out of joy, out of fulfillment. So Leela is like that. But there are some schools who feel that the absolute ultimately must be still. And they can't quite get the Leela. So they, they talk about the Leela in a different way. It's kind of like some partial manifestation in the world of movement amongst, you know, of the stillness. Stillness moving, it's rather confusing. They say it's all one, but there's a problem with uh, that when it comes to Leela and the world, for that matter. So, that's another whole discussion, but one of the reasons, again, then, for this kind of literal explanation is what? Is that you don't want, in pursuing the meaning behind the story, to have the truth of the life of Bhagwan, of God, that the story is based on, to evaporate and disappear. And it's all just silent, and there's no Leela. That's another reason why it will be emphasized. No, it happened like this. Krishna has a form. He's not ultimately formless. He has form. And so we feel good about that, because we have form. We say, and you can have a personal relationship with God. If there's nobody else, there's only one, there's no relationship. We like that. We like to have a personal relationship. Of course, what we're carrying with us into this is our idea of form, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. our idea of what, what I am as a person, to one extent or another, what it means to have a personal relationship. And while there's some truth to it, it's very different. Our present material personality is not us. <laughs> but we think, yeah, I, I, and I like this, so I'd like to do that with God, because I'm like this, and I'd like to be that, play that part in the Lilo, or I'd like to play that part. We were just speaking about our enjoying, exploiting sense of self <laughs> and projecting that into the Leelas is a huge problem. So, what can you do? 
we're trying to explain the most beautiful musical concert to people that are deaf. That's the task. That's what the Bhagavatam's task is. To explain music to the deaf. How do you explain it? But they're very artful in doing that. And they get us in and on board and, and so forth. And then there has to be progression here. There has to be progression. And that will again be unsettling. Don't shy away from that. That will strengthen you. Your reason will come to bear and have employment. First we just shut it off. Stop thinking. Okay, you think too much. Thinking is the problem. Thinking is the problem. And it is, in many respects. Just think about what you think about, and you know it's the problem. <laughs> <laughs> it's just kind of going on automatically. You know, it's thinking about something other than what you're doing most of the time. Yeah. So how much can you get out of the you know, thing that you're participating in? Life. So stop thinking. And then you listen to these stories. And then, but then after a certain point, to think about those stories in the Bhagavad. What is the under, underlying philosophy? So when we say it's not literal in all respects by any means, we're also explaining that the philosophy of the Bhagavad is, the metaphysic is achinta veda veda. It's not a dvaita vedanta. It's advaigyantatva, non-dual reality, but we're qualifying that. Brahmiti, paramatmiti, bhagavaniti, shabdate. It's the nature of being, ultimate reality is one and different at the same time. Identity and difference. So there's rasa, it means there's two. Right? There's Bhagwan and there's, a, there's God and there's a devotee. There's two. But there's no duality because the two become one, but they become one in a dynamic sense. Just like you and I fall in love, then you and I become we. You and I still exist. But we're unified in a dynamic way, not in a static way, that the unity does away with anybody else or anything else. So this is a poor idea of unity, as I said earlier, just to get rid of everybody else, and myself too. So this is very much more artful type of yoga. And this is the philosophy that underlies the Bhagavad and its stories and so forth. So you get that in place, and then, to that extent, then you can hear, oh, it's not as concrete as I thought it there. Then you start to draw the meaning out of the stories and so forth. You apply that in your life. You enter into the world of bhava. You experience the form of Krishna. You experience the leela of Krishna. And you experience, it's, it's beyond words, practically it's impossible to explain. I make my effort. And then you write your book. And you're trying to explain the experience. What is bhava? What is, what is prema? If you study these books carefully, you see this is what's going on here. It's not a history book like that gives detailed history. It incorporates the Bhagavad in its literary exp expression of eight, some 18,000 verses, the current literary edition, as I say, science of the time, some geography of the time, cosmology of the time, some psychology of the time, and so forth. And, and you can see the deep insights into human psychology there, deep insights into the nature of the objective world also. But we have to also understand that this world is something that's not limited, as much as you might think it is. I mean, how many souls are there in the world? Unlimited. So how many different perceptions of there are of it? Unlimited. It's a huge thing. So in Bhagavat, when, when Sukadev was asked by the Raj Pariksit to tell me something about Maya, about the material world, because I know by understanding it, I'll understand something more about Bhagavan. It's an aspect of him. Sukadev said, I'll try, but 
It's unlimited. What can I say? It's like endless permutations of the gunas, sattva, rajas, tamas. It's magical, fascinating. What can I say about it? What I mean to say by citing that is that though they different, be different insights into the world. The world is a particular face of God, the back of God, so to speak, the material world, showing it. And it's beautiful also. It's charming. The shadow of the light, so to speak. And sometimes it'll look like that, and you'll think everything is revolving around the earth. And you look at it again, no, everything's revolving around the sun. Later you think everything's revolving around the soul. Consciousness is another revolution, isn't it? What does the Gita say? Jiva Bhuta Mahaya Baho Yayedam Dharete Jagat. It says the world, matter, is revolving not around the moon or the sun or the earth, but around the consciousness, the soul's consciousness that's in the form of the individual units of will. It's all moving around that. Then with regard to details and what you may see, how you may see it, there's all some relativity there. Bhagavad is very contemporary when it was written, written for contemporary times. The writer was trying to explain these unexplainable truths like the personality of Godhead, the avatars, descent, and so forth, these type of things. And he wanted to write about a contemporary way, so he employed the science of the time, psychology of the time, geography of the time to some extent. Anyone who's trying to do this is going to try to explain it in terms, like I am. I use analogies from the world today, and so this is what the author was doing. This is what it means to be a Bhagwat. To do that, that means we have, to have realization. When you draw your own realizations from the world, when the world talks to you, and you see something happen at some common experience in the world, and it speaks to you, and then you speak about it, and by speaking about it, you shed light on spiritual, spiritual nature, ultimate reality. That's your realization. Do you understand? You can parrot the analogies of the Bhagavatam, but when you have your own analogies, it means you're really listening. You're listening to the environment in a particular way, and it's speaking to you. God is watching us from a distance. <laughs> but you can get close if you listen, and you can find it everywhere. The whole environment is speaking to us. It's favorable. Guru is local. Guru is everywhere. Also, if we really listen to one Guru very carefully and serve, pay attention and serve the knowledge that he or she represents, we'll see that knowledge that is embodied in the Guru is, is everywhere. The whole environment is speaking to me. That's why my Guru Maharaj told me once that I never felt absence from my Guru, Dave, even for a moment. I told him once he, he was sick and he wasn't going to go from Mayapur to Vrindavan. I said, I'm not going to Vrindavan. He says, why not? I said, because wherever you are, that's where the festival is. He liked that, but he said, but, but actually you should go. You're sannyasin and leader of other devotees. You should go there and speak to them, and explain things. And then he said, I never feel the absence of my guru for a moment. And so this is possible. And Guru means a particular manifestation of God coming locally to us to help us locally, give attention to us locally. We should pay attention there. So this is what the author of Bhagavatam is doing. So this is a little bit something, introduction, how to understand this kind of book. It's not to be taken as a literal account. It's not that the leelas of Krishna aren't real. Krishna didn't lift the gold on the hill really or didn't do this. He did all those things. But this is a way of talking about how he did and how it was experienced by, by the author and so forth. And 
and so on. So I hope this unsettles you to some extent, or it may comfort you even, because you've been reading the Bhagavad some of you for some time, and then you're thinking, but you're you're growing, and so you need to harmonize your head with your with your heart, and and so. And if you don't go to this stage, then it, it becomes a huge problem. You're stuck on the raft, mm-hmm. and you think I'm in the water. I know what it's like. You're just on the raft. You're not in the water at all. I mean, while some people have jumped off and dove in, and they're and and, and they're swimming, and they think guy on the raft thinks you don't get it. You're supposed to be on the raft here. That's <laughs> where you're supposed to be on the raft. You're not supposed to be down there underneath. That's dangerous. I don't know about that. I don't know about that. That's off the deep end. And you say it's deeper than you think. <laughs> it's really deep, and there's no end. It's bottomless. And so this is the kind of book where there was a story of Bhagavan and the Sringa comes. And what's the time? Quarter to what? Quarter to twelve. So, so and where does it start? The story. This is a big story in the Bhagavatam. This Nishinga Avatar is one amongst three of the manifestations of divinity in Hinduism that is said to be a, a full manifestation. Sadaishvarya. Sadaishvarya. Wealth, strength, beauty, knowledge, fame, renunciation. Wealth, strength, beauty, knowledge, fame, renunciation. These are said to be six opulences by which possessing people become attractive. If people are famous, they're attractive to us. If they're wealthy, the wealth attracts attracts attention. Beauty attracts attention. Knowledge attracts attention. Renunciation attracts attention. Oh, if he's sitting there over there in a the forest, he doesn't do he doesn't eat, and you go, Wow, let's go there. Let's check it out. <laughs> What's that all about? Wealth, fame, strength also attracts attention if he can lift something big. So, one of the definitions of Bhagwan, of God, is who has all these six Aishvari, six opulences in full, is, by definition, all attractive. Because we have it to one extent, we're attractive to another. Who has all of them in full is all attractive. So amongst them, Krishna, Ram, and Narasimha. Or Sadaishvarya Purna. And of course, Chaitanya Mahaprabhu is the secret Sadaishvarya Purna also. But he's Krishna, so it doesn't count. He's the same person. So, very extraordinary avatar in his story goes over a number of uh, cantos. The book is, consists of 12 cantos. And um, the story begins really in the third canto. And when we begin the story in the third canto, although it's primarily dealt with in the seventh canto, it begins in the third canto. And if we begin the story there, we go to the real kind of root of the whole, of all the stories in the life of God, all the episodes, recorded ones, that is, in the life of God recorded in a heart. Just like in our heart, there's a knot. Hridayagranta. This is called the material ego. It's a knot. We're knotted to material existence. We're tied there by attachment. Hridayagranta. Pujapachita Maharaj once described as a black box. Like the black box on the airplane. When the airplane crashes, they're looking for the black box. <laughs> it's got the recording of everything. They can figure out everything from the black box. So a saintly person can look into the heart and figure out everything. It's recorded there. It's our whole material experience. That's our the knot, the ego. We're tied there. We can understand the whole thing. And then see how to talk to us, how to engage us, how to untie that knot. 
This is the idea. Expose the black box, something like that. So in the devotee's heart, what happens is as this material knot of attachment is, is untied, it's untied in the context of developing attachment for that which is worthy of being identified with, that the leelas of God, all virtuous leelas of the play of God. And so an ego or an identity forms in relation to that, that enables one to be a participant in that. And so that's where these leelas are recorded in hearts of devotees. And then sometimes they speak about them out of their kindness. That becomes a book then. That's where it's existing. All wonderful things can take place there. Then they try to talk about it as best they can. So this is one of the recorded ones. And there are many that aren't recorded. Episodes in the life of Bhagawan. And if we go to the third canto where the story kind of begins, we get at the root from which the entire play of Bhagawan grows, expresses itself. And the root is that he is... Rasa. It's about rasa, play. The highest vision is to you see everything in relation to this. It's all the play of Bhagawan. And there are many other relative reasons why things happen, why this is going on and that's going on. We can point the finger here or there, this or that. And the highest vision, it all comes back. Lokavatunilakaivaliyam, to the play of Bhagawan, the play of God. And you'll find in this story so many things happen, so many reasons why this happened, why Prahlad was tortured and why this happened, and that and so forth. But the root cause is all the way back into the, in Vaikuntha itself, in the Vaikuntha expand. Vaikuntha means that paravyo, the world beyond the mind. Not just the stopping of the mind, but the world beyond the mind with positive spiritual ego and so forth. There, in that place, Bhagavan, he's associated with his devotees and in relation to them, some desire comes for play, to express his fullness in a particular way. So here we find he had a desire for vira, vira rasa, the heroic rasa. This is one of the emotions, one of the sentiments, primary sentiments that have the capacity to rise to rasa, to speak about it in a literary context. So, vira means heroic, chivalrous. Yeah, there's different kinds of vira. Yudhavira, dhanavira, four kinds. Yudhavira, dhanavira, what are the other two? Um, dharmavira. But in this, uh, in Baikuntha, you won't find that yudhavira. That is in Braj where the cowards are wrestling with Krishna and pinning him to the ground and defeating him and so forth. But the, like Dharmavir, to be the hero and establish Dharma and fight with the demonic elements and so forth. But he's in Vaikuntha. There's no demonic elements there. He wants to taste Virarasa. So the whole story expands from this. This is the root of it. And I think that we've talked for some time now and our time is over. So I'll begin this afternoon then to tell the whole story, starting from the root to, to the end, as long as it takes us. I wanted to give this as a preface so that we could, so when we talk about things that seem unbelievable, we don't just dismiss them. We pay attention. Are there any questions? Yes, Jagadishwar, welcome back from your pilgrimage to uh, India. You went to the bank of the Kaveri there, where the boyhood, the boyhood of the Bhagavatam was experienced.
You're right there, mm -hmm. right? Mm-hmm. With the crocodiles. Yeah. There's a lot of crocs in there now. They're not able to swim anymore. Oh, goodness. <laughs> oh, Kali Yuga is advancing. <laughs> Question? Yeah, in regards to, often you mentioned the point of hearing the leelas and then drawing something out to apply it, how to apply it in your life. So maybe the question was, I wonder if you could give a, one or two practical examples, because you must have something in mind as you say that, like you've obviously drawn things yourself, so for me it's not so obvious, so that we, the past five today, the three days of parents, and, you know, what types of things could be applied? Oh, well, yeah, so many things. It's mostly in relation to spiritual progress, how to live one's life in such a way as to make progress. So, you know, you listen to the story of Prahlad, and then as I talk about it, Prahlad and Shringa this evening, whenever I make a point, that, uh, that philosophical point that's to be, which is draw from it, applied in life, I'll mention it. That's one. That's one. We'll do it like that, okay? <laughs> there are so many. What else? Another question? Comment? Yes. You said that the Advaitins talk about Leela in the material world in vague terms because they try to describe the stat what they perceive as a static, absolute, temporarily moving in this world. How, what about these other Leelas that happen in Vaikuntha for today? Uh, well, they don't acknowledge that Vaikuntha is, 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 is uh, that there's the a Paravyam. Hmm? Yeah, even for that matter though, the Vaikuntha that this Leela begins in is the Vaikuntha manifestation within the material world. That's another reason why Jai and Vijay, the gatekeepers, didn't fall from Vaikuntha. Of course, they were, first they were outside the gate, but secondly, that wasn't the kind of like Nitya Vaikuntha. There's a Vaikuntha planet within the world and that was happening, began there. So they look at it, I suppose, from that point of view. Sri Nishinga Chaturasi Mahamhotsabatiti ki jai, Bhakti Prahlad Maharaj ki jai, Gaud Bhakti Vrinda ki jai, Gaud Premanande.